What did you think of Galatians? Was it all right? Did it make sense? Did it help? It was good, was it? I trust through that we've just been able to remind ourselves that life with Christ isn't about do's and don'ts. It's about relationship. And through that comes character that bears fruit through relationships. Our relationship with the world, what we get up to in the world, and how we live for him. So now we're starting a new series. We've called it Word in Action. We're starting uh, today on eight Sundays, going through the letter of James. And we felt it's a really good follow-on from uh, Galatians. Uh, James is written, just for a bit of history, James is written by Jesus' half-brother. Strangely enough, called James. Well done. Oh, you've heard this one before. James was Jesus' half-brother. Uh, known as James the Just, is one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, a massive church. Actually, you start following history in the sh- few short decades after, uh, after Christ ascended and the church began at Pentecost. There were many, many, many thousands of genuine believers in the city of Jerusalem. It was a huge percentage of the city. It's something we can only dream of today. Lord, bring it. In London, in Herne Bay, we'd love to see that kind of ratio. It's huge. And James, one of Jesus' brothers, was one of the leaders in this church. And it's interesting, even at the very beginning of this letter, he doesn't call himself Jesus' brother. At no point does he mention it. He's James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew who his brother was. He knew who he was to him. And he doesn't go, do you know who I am? Do you know who I grew up with? Do you know what we get up to when we were being cheeky with our mum? None of all that. No name dropping. I'm a servant of the living Lord Jesus Christ. He knew his half-brother was the living God who died for him and rose again. Isn't that amazing? I think it's fantastic. And this letter he wrote in the mid-40s, the church, global church as we know it at the time, was only about 10 years old, just a bit more, 15 years old, barely. And he's writing it to what is called the dispersion. The church under some persecution had started to spread. It was the birth of the global church, great church growth of the time, huge expansion. And he's writing to the uh, church in country, in Jerusalem, in in, in the nation, but also on the outside as well now, house churches on the outside as the ripple effect starts growing. And he's writing to them. And why is he writing? Well, strangely enough, already, because the church is made up of people, Things start going a bit awry, don't they? Because we're good at that, aren't we? There is conflict in the church. There, is, there are factions in the church. A lot of them are living a worldly lifestyle and there is a, fa- a general failure to put faith into practice, which is James's big thing. This is why a lot of people, it's their favourite book in the Bible because it's very practical. It's very grounded in things you can do, things you should be displaying. It's, a lot of it's quite spelled out about the power of the tongue and so on and so forth. And it's about putting your faith into practice because if a faith isn't being lived out, what kind of a faith really is it? It's just something you give lip service to, not something that is deeply embedded in your heart and brings life change. And James is concerned about this and he writes to the church at large and this is, this is an action-packed, I'd call this an action-packed letter. There's no car chases, there's no gunfights, but it's full of action in what we could or should be doing as the church, if we're truly Jesus-centred. And if we don't see that going on in our church, in Beacon, for example, in our own lives, are we as Jesus-centred as we think we are? Always a big question, isn't it? It's a very practical book. And actually, 
like I've already mentioned, it is a natural follow-on to Galatians. Galatians is all about there was a crisis in the church. Paul brings doctrine. It's a whole legal case he presents using doctrine and history to help them see where they're going wrong. And actually, if they were truly Jesus-centered, they'd be living like this. That's what Galatians is like. And now James feels like a natural follow-on. Well, let's continue looking at what life should look like. Strangely enough, James was actually written before Galatians was, before Paul wrote to the church in Galatia just a few years later. So James was written first, but it comes after in our Bibles. It's just the way the Bibles have been, our Bible's been compiled together. The order is based around genre and about author and so on and so forth, rather than chronology. So James was actually written just slightly before. But we're going to take a slightly different approach in this series. Like I say, it's eight Sundays. Rather than a systematic approach like we did with Galatians, we went through a chunk at a time, working our way through, because Paul presents a big case from beginning to end with a big middle. And there was a reason why it was wise to follow through the letter as he's written it. But James is an interesting character. I think he's got a bit of ADHD going on. He's a bit like, Way, and let's, oh, there's this bit over here. And don't forget that bit. And you know that bit I mentioned earlier? And it's like these themes keep popping up from below the surface and keep cropping up. And there's, there's lots of them keep cropping up. And if we worked our way through the letter systematically, we'd start repeating ourselves later on. So actually what we've done, we've compiled them into themes. It's almost like, you know the cartoons of the Loch Ness Monster? You see the head, and there's some water, and there's a bit of a body, then the water, a bit of a body, a bit of a tail. There's these bits, at different moments, keep popping up from the water, and that's what these themes do. They keep popping up through the surface at different times. In two, three, maybe even four different places, a theme will keep cropping up. So we've actually drawn them together into eight themes. For example, there's, one, there's, there's a theme of prayer, there's a theme about the wedge of sin. The thin end of the wedge can actually become a large wedge. We need to kill it. About partiality inside and outside of the church, how we treat people differently compared to others. About being doers of the word. Richard Burgess from Ashford, Gateway Church in Ashford, will be here in two weeks' time. And he'll be sharing on that subject about being doers of the word, which is actually probably James's major overall theme, is that if you, you, you can read the Bible all you like, but if it's not making a difference in here, there's no point in even trying. It's about living life out, which is why we've called this series Word in Action. So we're going to follow a thematic approach. and Today's theme is on the subject of steadfastness. And I've heard people preaching my sermon already this morning. (laughs) In conversation beforehand, during our prayer time together and during worship, the Holy Spirit's doing something, I think. And I don't think, I know. And James part one is very timely for what's been going on here at Beacon at the moment, I think. So... Let's read, if you turn to uh, the book of James, it comes after Hebrews, it's about two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the way through your New Testament. The book of James, chapter 1, and I'll pick out a couple of other places where James relates to this subject, these Loch Ness monster, the Nessie bumps, if you like, coming up from the surface. So James chapter 1, it's verses 2 to 4. Let me just read the first verse, just where James introduces himself. James, here he is, not his brother, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And then straight in there, here he goes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then drop down to verse 12. There's another bump, Nessie's bump coming up under the waves. Here it goes. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
And then there's another bump in chapter 5, right at the end. See, it comes up again. Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained, here it is, steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let me just pray. Lord, as we dwell on this subject of steadfastness, what it means, not just what we think it means, but what you mean by it, Lord, may you embed this deep in our hearts in such a way that we get to live it out. Lord, uh, however it is you want to pierce our hearts as individuals and as a body, may you do so this morning with the Holy Spirit. Come speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Steadfastness. What is steadfastness? Hey, Perseverance? Yeah, it's about endurance, about enduring. It's about being established. It's about unwavering which can have a tendency to sound like you're being immovable. Steadfast, anything can come, I'm not going anywhere, which I'll talk about in a minute. That is actually dangerous, that's not what it's talking about. It's about persevering, which involves movement. It's not about being immovable, but it is about enduring. See, when trials come, and some of us have already been talking about this this morning, when trials come, how do we respond? And there are some ways we can and do respond, which aren't helpful even if we think they are. But there is also the biblical way of responding, which is what this word steadfastness is all about. See, there are two, two kind of, they're kind of extremes, but they're related. They're kind of denials of the situation. There's stoicism, which I'll explain in a minute, about being stoic. And that is almost a denial of the reality. No, there's no real trial here. Nothing going on here. Look the other way, you'll be all right. Or there is also seeking safety. Seeking a comfort zone, which is another denial. It's accepting that the reality is there, but it's finding a way of hiding from it rather than dealing with it. There are two dangers which we can all be tempted to do. Many of us probably have and sometimes still do in different ways. But that's not what James is asking of us here. He's talking about steadfastness. So that's what I want to look at. I want to look at this stoicism. I want to look at this safety seeking. And then I want to look at what true biblical steadfastness really is and how we can respond to that. So, stoicism. It's a big word, I'll explain it in a mo. But just think about this. When trials come our way, what is our natural response normally? When bereavement comes our way, there's bereavement in the church at the moment, isn't there? One of our members lost his dad just this week. If you don't know, I'll explain about Kev's dad later. He lost his dad. Ill health. A lot of us are facing health issues at the moment. When ill health comes our way, it hits us like a brick, doesn't it? We take our health for granted until there's something wrong with it. Then we realise. Sometimes that's long term, sometimes that's short term. But it still hits us like a big punch, doesn't it? 
job problems. You can have issues in the workplace with people or with the job you're in and you can't get out of it. Sometimes God wants us to stay there. Sometimes it's appropriate to move on, but we have to work it, work it out. It can be a real trial sometimes, particularly the way I'd suggest our culture in Britain is going in the workplace. It's a lot of push, 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 cuts, cuts, cuts. Sometimes for genuine reasons, sometimes not. And it can be hard. Finance can be a real trial, especially at the moment. And that can be related to jobs and redundancy and so on and so forth as well. But bills are going up. Heating and food and, and fuel costs, they've gone down a little bit recently, haven't they? But generally speaking, they'd be on the rise as well. And it can get hard trying to meet the bills with no wage increase because there's no increases at work. Bullying can be a trial. We think about bullying in the playground. There is lots of bullying still going on in the workplace. Sometimes with neighbours even as well. And it's hard. How do we respond? When these things come your way, do you go, yes, thank you, Jesus. I'm delighted. I'm delighted you've given me this real overwhelming prognosis that I've got six months to live. Thank you so much. Do we? No, of course not. This week, I was over the moon because I got, from the, through the post, a Tesco voucher for 25p off figure rolls. Now, if you know me, you'll know I was punching the air. I love figure rolls. Pack it a day, staple diet, love them. Sitting there in bed with my whiskey and my figure rolls, don't I, darling? Love them. Oh, lovely. Figure rolls. Tip from the top there. Keeps you healthy. Figure. I love figure rolls. 25p off. I was, oh, genuinely, thank you, Jesus. That's brilliant. I was over the moon about that. I was elated. Do I react the same way when trials come? Of course I don't. But then what does James say? Verse 2, chapter 1. As soon as he's introduced himself, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Nutter. Really? Did I just read that right? Maybe I I misread it. Let me try again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What's he talking about? He's not on this planet, is he? Or is he? Why would he say that? Because he recognises that a testing of our faith produces true steadfastness. Someone else says the same thing. Romans chapter 5. Paul says the same thing. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. What does he say? Just from the previous verse, just to get the context. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, this favour in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. Yes, we're saved. We rejoice. Brilliant. And then he goes, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Here's another one. What's he doing? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, steadfastness. And endurance, steadfastness, produces character. And character produces hope. They see behind the scenes and they see what God's doing and they see how we can react, not how, always how we do we react, but how we can react and what that brings and how it brings maturity and how it brings hope. That's fascinating because it's not our natural reaction in the slightest, is it? He's saying rejoice not because trials are pleasant. He's not saying be, be ignorant of the facts And God is very real and God does care and God is interested and he knows how we feel. 
But it's not saying rejoice because the trials are present, but they're, because they're not. But it's saying rejoice because it's making us more like Jesus. And what by that I mean, through that we can become, if we embrace a trial in the right way, a God-honouring way, we become more humble. We recognise who we are and who he is. We become more patient. We recognise his timescale, not ours. We start to see things through his eyes and not through ours. We become more faithful. We start to learn by experience. He got me through that. He can get me through this. We learn by experience. We learn to become more faithful. We become more worshipful. Honouring him in the trial, in the storm, is an act of worship rather than telling him he's got it wrong or telling him he doesn't care or questioning if he really exists in the first place, going, you know what, I still believe you're good and I still believe you've got my back. That's an act of worship. And I'd also suggest it makes us, becoming more like Jesus, it makes us more generous as well. We can empathise with people who are in situations where we have a more more compassionate spirit for them. We want to share not just in money, but also in time, in commitment, in carrying each other's burdens. But how does that happen? How does steadfastness come? Does it happen by default? Of course it doesn't, because sometimes people give up. Some of us may have in the past given up. I know people who've fallen away from the church as soon as their crisis hit, never see them again. I'm not even sure where their faith was in the first place. Over and over and over and over again. Countless people now. And it's very sad, but it's true. There is, a, there is a choice in the moment of how we respond. And this is where the Stoics come in, because one of our responses can be about being stoical. The Stoics, they started about 2,300 years ago, 3rd century BC. They were a bunch of philosophers. It was all about finding strength in yourself, or even, to the extreme, denying the facts of what's going on behind you, around you. The most famous Stoic is probably Marcus Aurelius. You know, who's in Gladiator? Russell Crowe. The Richard, the, Richard, oh, <laughs> the Richard Harris character. The Caesar, he gets killed by his son. That is Marcus Aurelius. He's probably the most famous Stoic philosopher that we know of. And it was, like I say, it was all, about, it was all about finding the strength in yourself. No, 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 I'll be fine, I'll be fine. This cancer will not beat me. I determine not to let this cancer beat me. I've got the strength in myself. Or, no, I've, got, I've not got cancer. The doctors have got it wrong. I'll be fine. I'm going to go into denial mode and I'll pretend I'm all right and I'm not even going to go to the doctors. It's a form of stoicism and it's very, very British. It's starting to disappear a little bit now, but particularly in the last century, a very British thing. Stiff up a lip. Grin and bear it. You know, these keep calm and carry on posters. There's loads of them flicking up all over Facebook, all over the internet. It's doing my head in now. Keep calm and make a cup of tea. Keep calm and make coffee. Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and kill zombies. Keep calm and loads of them. Keep calm and watch Strictly Come Dancing. I don't know what it is. But it's all a, it's all a denial. Keep calm. It's all right. If you don't look, you won't see the problem. You'll be, oh, no, it's, no, it's no problem here. Everything's fine. Keep calm and carry on. It's very British. Stiff up a lip. I've got Richmond Golf Club rules from 1940 here. These are brilliant. This is stiff upper lip to the extreme. This is real stoicism. But temporary rules for Richmond Golf Club, 1940. I won't read them all out. Number one, 
Players are asked to collect bomb and shrapnel splinters to save these causing damage to the mowing machines. We will not let this stop us playing golf. Okay, I understand that. Bit of blitz going on. Every now and again at night, people come over, drop stuff. We get up in the morning, want to play golf. We don't want the mowing machine to be damaged, so we'll pick the bits up. I get that. But, number two. In competitions, during gunfire, or while bombs are falling, players may take cover without penalty for ceasing play. <laughs> what? Really? Stiff up a lip and all that. Grin and bear it. There's nothing going on here. Keep swinging. Number three, the positions of known delayed action bombs are marked by red flags at a reasonably but not guaranteed safe distance therefrom. <laughs> Keep playing, lads. There's nothing going on here. I'll just read the last one. This is amazing. A player whose stroke is affected by the simultaneous explosion of a bomb may play another ball from the same place without penalty. <laughs> Now, I'm sorry, but that's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? I understand some of the sentiment behind it, but really... That's a real stoic denial of the, of the events that are going on around you. If there's a bomb going off, I'm not playing golf. I'll be over there if you need me. Where's the nearest bunker? What's it all about? We need to, the Bible says, we need to be real. We need to embrace events, but in a way that honors God and trusts him through it. There's a guy called Art Katz. He says, when you praise God in adversity you have broken through onto heavenly ground. Sacrifice of praise, absolutely. Psalm 46 verse 10, the psalmist is voicing God's voice and says, be still and know that I am God. That's not being stoic. That's understanding what's going on around you, but knowing that he is God and he cares and he's interested and he's got your back as his child. Big difference. Beware stoicism, it's not helpful. But then there's another concern that when trials come, they can make us crumble and we don't embrace them. We're very aware of their reality, but we run away from them rather than understanding that God can use this in a bigger way. So you know the old balance beams? This is where I fall off and break my neck. You know, you know these balance beams you get at the Olympics? It's always the girls, the Russians and the little Chinese and that, and they do these. I won't, it's all right. But... <laughs> You want me to, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm off duty. I was on yesterday. I think I'll be all right. I'm not going to do any backflips. But the thing is, you're surrounded by the crowd and you've got stuff to do. Now, a stoic would be, well, I'm just going to ignore what's happening and I'm just going to get to the other end and everything will be fine and everything will be fine and there's no problem here. But you haven't actually really learn anything through that have you you just got to the other end but there's another issue when we can retreat you see you start off okay and you haven't fallen off and everything's all right and then a trial comes stuff hits ill health job concerns debt and the debt's racking up and the income's going down and you're in a right old pit how do you react There's nothing to see here. I'll be fine. Keep playing while the bombs are going off. Or do you deal with the situation? Or do you think, do you know what? I'd rather just hide in the corner. 
And I know I'm supposed, I've got stuff to do on here, but you know, Jenny had her car crash and her back broke. It was a big thing for us. And then my best mate, my best mate James, he was killed in a car crash. And life gives us punches, doesn't it? Sock right in the belly, doesn't it? How do you react to that? And sometimes the temptation is to go, do you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to be here if you need me. And I'm just going to, the crowd won't mind. And I'm just going to sit here like this for the rest of my life. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to hide in my house with lots of soft furnishings and no sharp edges. And I'll just eat organic food and just the stuff that's been harvested by vegans just to be on the safe side. Because I'd rather just hide, I'd just rather not tempt any trials to happen, you know. If I just hide, maybe then no more will come. And every time Amy goes out the house, I make sure she wears a helmet. And, and I, I won't really get in the car because that's a bit risky, isn't it? But if I do, I definitely won't go on any motorways and... And I'll only do left-hand turns. I won't do any right-hand turns, so I don't have to cross any traffic. So my journeys will be a bit spirally, but I'll get there in the end. But and I, I talk about getting involved in church, you know, just like it's, it gets a bit sticky sometimes, don't it? Maybe, maybe just so I feel better, I'll just help out in the crash now and again. That's a bit safe and easy. I can hide in the corner and I'll tie 2% and feel better about myself and just hope everything goes away. And, and, then, and then maybe... What I'd like to do is have no ill health and I'd just like to die in my sleep, if that's okay. And, and so at the end of my time on the balance beam, I'll, I'll just kind of slip away peacefully in my sleep and, and there'll be no pain at all. And then I'll go... Thank you to the applause of the great judge of the universe. How is that well done, good and faithful servant? But we, we're tempted to hide, aren't we? We're tempted to hide away, but trials will still come. Trials will... You can't get away from trials. Ill health can, can and does still catch up on you, no matter what you do. Yes, of course there's diet and exercise. I'm not saying don't worry about all that. Of course there's reasonable effort to be done <laughs> looking after our bodies. Finance issues can and do still creep up on us. You can't hide from trials but we can still crumble when they come, can't we? Is that worshipping him? Or is it not acknowledging how good and how big he is? See, seeking safety draws us deep into isolation. It makes us very lonely and it diminishes in our head and our hearts how big our God is. The answer is about deep community, about being together and actually understanding what true biblical steadfastness is. Go back to James chapter 5. See, God owes us no explanation for what comes our way, does he? Really? That doesn't mean he doesn't care. But he doesn't have to explain everything. Sometimes he can't explain everything. Because we'd never understand it. It's like Amy, me trying to explain to Amy why she can't go anywhere she wants on the internet. I'm not going to explain to her every detail what happens out there, am I? Either she wouldn't understand it or terrify the living daylights out of it. She'd be screwed up because her little brain isn't ready for understanding some of that. I can tell her some, but I won't tell her all. She just has to trust me. There's a childlike trust in there. 
And it's the same for us with our Father. We don't know why ill health or bereavement comes our way at certain times and in certain places. Doesn't mean he's not good. Doesn't mean he's not big. But we cannot grow in character and endurance by hiding in the corner or denying reality or by reading a book on the subject or hearing a sermon on it. That doesn't make you grow by in endurance and immaturity. That comes through walking through the trials with him. This is where we learn. So James chapter 5, those last few verses at the end I read, from verse 7, let's read it again. What does James say? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your heart. See, there's a choice here. You can or not establish your heart. Establish your heart. Be decisive. Be conscious of what you're thinking, of what you're feeling, and what your understanding of who God is by reading the Bible. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then he says here, even collectively... Be aware of our relationships as we go through these times. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. These guys had some horrendous stuff thrown their way or the way people spoke of them or treated them. But they had his word, God's word, burning in their hearts and they couldn't keep their mouth shut and they couldn't not do what he'd asked them to do. There is a steadfastness there because they knew who he was. Then verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. If you haven't, he's a guy, maybe we're preaching him sometime. He's in the Old Testament just before Psalms, his letter. In fact, his, his, his story, in fact, it's right down kind of Genesis time chronolo- chronologically. But he's a guy who loved God who through the devil coming in and wanting to put him through a trial, God wasn't responsible for the trial, but he allowed it because he knew it would prove Job's heart. And there was some horrendous stuff came Job's way. Loss of family, loss of everything. It's horrendous. And yet Job, he questioned God. He ranted and he raved. At no point did he dishonor God. It was different. And he remained steadfast despite what had come to him, despite what his friends were putting in his head. And God honoured it. And he ended up with far more at the end of the story than he ever had at the beginning. God honoured him for it. He was a guy who was steadfast. Why? You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There is our God. He is compassionate and he is merciful. And he demonstrated that in his son Jesus who came to this life that is full of trial. He had stuff hurled his way, verbal abuse, physical abuse, torture, death for you and for me. So James chapter 1, that verse 12 that kind of bumped up in the middle of nowhere again. Verse 12, chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Jesus stood the test and he was steadfast 
and he received the crown of life in your behalf. That is not contradicting what we learnt about in Galatians. That is not saying, well, it's, it's all right. Of course Jesus was steadfast. He's God, isn't he? He can do that. I'm just a human. It's not saying we must try harder. But that crown of life is referring to a laurel wreath that the runners won in athletic games. And it was a well done, good and faithful servant. It's not about works. It's not about being stoical. I shall not be wavered. I shall not be moved. This illness will not beat me. It's mind over matter. The more I think positively, the more it will go away. This is walking through it, knowing Jesus has got our back, knowing he's already won the ultimate battle, and whatever comes my way, if this does mean, if this cancer does mean the end of me, if this, these issues at work does mean I lose my job, I know he's still a good, compassionate God who is doing it for greater purposes, not because he doesn't care, but because he does care, and through that I will grow and I'll receive the crown of life and be with him. As Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is, to die is gain. Hebrews 12, as I finish. This is about finding joy in our circumstances. This is about endurance. Here it goes again. Beginning of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to all the characters who've demonstrated faith in the past, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Don't be wavered, not because you've got the strength in you, but don't be wavered because your king is in front beckoning you on. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He went through all those trials, that verbal abuse, physical abuse, that torture, that death for you. You were his joy. I was his joy. And now we can go through whatever life throws our way, not denying it, embracing its reality, but knowing he is our joy. Our joy isn't in these trials going away. He is our joy within them. Does that help? I know there's people here who are going through different trials at the moment. Some aren't here, some of you here are. It'd be good just to pray and to respond and to ask for his help in these moments. Because we always need his help, don't we? We can't do it on our own. We can't find the strength in ourselves. It won't happen. So if you're going through a trial at the moment, we're not going to ask what it is. Some of us might know what it is. It might be something secret. It's not a problem. It could be relational. It could be financial, it could be health-wise, it could be anything. If you're going through a trial, just raise your hand and we'd love to pray together. I'm not going to ask people to come up and pray with you. You don't have to reveal anything. It's just an acknowledgement that you're going through a trial and you need his help. If you just want to put your hand up, and we're going to pray together and then we're going to sing a song. I'm going to trust in God, I'm going to trust in Jesus. He is where our strength lies. Holy Spirit is where our strength and our confidence comes from because he keeps pointing us to Jesus. Let's just close our eyes.
and the people that have raised their hands. God has seen that. He knows you're acknowledging the trial. You're not denying it, ignoring it, hoping it will go away. Although there's always a little bit of that in us, isn't there? He understands that. We say, Lord, the people who have raised their hands just now, may you bless them richly. Richly, deeply. Pour your favour upon them. Pour your... We say, Holy Spirit, come and touch them in such a way that they sense Father's overwhelming love for them. Jesus' heart and compassion for them. Whatever it is they're facing. We don't want to just pray general blessing. We want to pray specifics. We say, Lord, where there are money issues, may there be breakthrough. That you promise each and every day our daily bread. We may not always get the big lump we want, but you get us enough to see us through each day. Lord, that's your promise over us. But where there needs to be breakthrough in, in, in releasing funds or in uh, paying off debt or we're owed money and it's not come through, may there be a release in the spiritual realm that unlocks those storehouses. It's not about prosperity and about wealth. It's about standing firm and seeing you come through for your glory. I want to increasingly learn not to keep asking for more money so I can buy nice things. I want to ask for more money so I can be more generous. And Lord, may you do that for us here. And Lord, for people with ill health, there's been a lot going on. As we've stuck our head above the parapet here at Beacon, the devil's not liked it. Ill health has flared up in a big way amongst so many different people. Lord, the devil's not under every stone. We're not going to give him that much credit. But there is something spiritual going on here. We say, devil, be bound in the name of Jesus. Sickness be gone in the name of Jesus. And we say, Father, heal our brothers and sisters in this place and the people we represent who aren't here today. Sickness be gone in the name of Jesus. That our King might be glorified. That the church may not be hampered in growth or distracted or put off, or cuddle up on that balance beam and hope it all goes away. But that we can stand firm, looking to our King Jesus, knowing he's got our back, knowing he's won the ultimate victory, and this is just but a skirmish. In bereavement for Kev, we just ask God, just bestow on him a deep thanks for the Father you gave him. Help him through these next few days as they plan for the funeral. Help the rest of the family. And actually, where there are relational issues, may this be a reason to draw them back together again. There's big stuff there that Kev's really struggled with. Lord, bring healing. Bring healing to that family, Lord. Lord, you're a good God who does care about us and we want to know, we want to be still and know that you are God. Would you like to stand? Let's sing one more song. Let's sing I'm going to